Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rising, before our top stories rather, let's listen to the AU anthem as we continue to celebrate Africa Month here at Channel Africa. Now let's look at our top stories. Former Chadian leader awaits a verdict on charges of crimes against humanity and five people sentenced to life in prison for deadly terror attacks in Uganda. In our sports news, Nigeria Super Eagles arrive in Luxembourg for a friendly match. But first up, the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has vowed to cut military and security ties with North Korea in line with UN sanctions imposed following nuclear and missile tests. Museveni, during a summit in Kampala while visiting South Korean President Park Geun-hye, said he ordered officials faithfully to honor the latest UN sanctions. The African country has maintained military cooperation with the isolated North, with dozens of North Korea military and police officials believed to be working in Uganda as military trainers. The UN Security Council in March imposed the toughest sanctions to date on the North following the fourth atomic test in January and a long-range rocket launch a month later. The rocket launch, widely seen as a disguised ballistic missile test, was staged in violation of existing UN resolutions that banned the country from any use of ballistic missile technology. Five United Nations peacekeepers from Togo have been killed and another was seriously injured in an ambush in central Mali. The soldiers of the UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali, or NIMUSA, Minusa, rather, were in a convoy which was attacked 30 kilometers west of Savare. No group has taken responsibility for the attack. It came 10 days after five Minusa peacekeepers from Chad were killed in an ambush in, north, in the northern region of Kidal. Two days ago, five Malian soldiers were killed near the town of Gao. Minum Sahed Mahat Saleh Anadenif condemned the killings. French forces have been stationed in northern Mali for three years since separatists joined jihadists to seize the region from the government in Bamako. Investigators into Egypt Air's plane crash need at least 12 days to recover its black boxes as they wait a ship that can retrieve them from the bottom of the Mediterranean. The Airbus A320 plane crashed into the Mediterranean with 66 people on board during flight two weeks ago from Paris to Cairo after disappearing from radar screens. Investigators are in a race against time to find the flight recorders known as the black boxes which have enough battery power to emit signals for four to five weeks. The recordings could help investigators determine the reason for the crash. The investigation into the crash is led by an Egyptian-headed committee. A Lesotho civil organization, the Free Movement of Basotho, has once again called for a merger of the Mountain Kingdom with South Africa. The latest demand was submitted after a protest march by about 200 people to the Lesotho High Commission in the east of Pretoria. Leader of the movement, Lizima Morolong, says the majority of Lesotho's people regard themselves as part of South Africa. The Lesotho nationals request a dual citizenship 
from the South African government. The Lesotho country is within South Africa, but Sotoland is the people of South Africa. The Free Basotho movement is against the South African government when saying Lesotho nationals who have been take the IDs of South Africa committed fraud. Fraudulently IDs are not in the Lesotho nationals. Maybe within the other nationals from neighbors of South Africa. And finally, five people have been killed when an improvised explosive device, or IED, exploded in the northeast Nigeria in a region where Boko Haram insurgents have operated for years. A baby was among those killed. Authorities say preliminary investigations show that the IED was buried a long time ago undetected. It exploded when the tricycle erroneously stepped on it. Authorities did not confirm if the explosive was planted by Boko Haram. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Jalan. It's 6 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today, judges at the extraordinary African chambers in the Senegal court system will deliver their verdict in the trial of former dictator of Chad, Hissan Abre. Abre faces charges of crimes against humanity, torture, and war crimes, and the prosecutor has asked the court to hand down a life sentence. The chambers were inaugurated by Senegal and the African Union in February 2013 to prosecute the person or persons most responsible for international crimes committed in Chad between 1982 and 1990, the period when Abre was president. The trial began on July the 20th in 2015 and ended on the 11th of February in 2016 after testimony from 93 witnesses and final arguments. It was the first trial in the world in which the courts of one country prosecuted the former ruler of another for alleged human rights crimes. It was also the first universal jurisdiction case to proceed to trial in Africa. For more on this, Jose Rodinaki spoke to Andrew Stroichlin, media director of Human Rights Watch, on the line from Brussels. Well, I mean, it was uh, during his eight years of rule, Habre, uh, well, he's accused of thousands of political killings. I mean, these are political killings of people seen to be opponents, people who got in the way of, of him or that they that his security teams thought were in the way. <laughs> and these are systematic torture throughout his eight years of rule from 1982 to 1990. So it was not in, in any way kind of random. This is specific like you say, too, you know, allegedly committed these atrocities between 1982 and 1990. He was deposed in 1990 by Idris Deby Itno, the current president, and has been living in exile in Senegal ever since. Why did it take so long to bring him to justice? Well, it's a good question. First of all, you have to understand this process was entirely victim-led. So the individual victims who, they looked like they had no power. They seemed quite powerless, and they slowly, step by step, over time, built up the momentum for this case. I mean, they, they were starting with really very little, you know, they were not very well equipped with money or, or resources, and step by step, they had to gather allies. Also, you know, it was important when they were pushing Senegal to establish this extraordinary court, because as you say, that is where Habre was living in very luxurious exile for many years. And so you know, they had to make the, the case to argue and start this extraordinary court. So that took some time. And also, it really took a change of uh, leadership in Senegal so that when uh, Macky Sall came in and became president in 2012, uh, his first justice minister made this Habre case kind of a cornerstone of her campaign to fight official impunity and corruption. So it took a lot of time, and it's unfortunate because, of course, some of the victims died in that 25 years and were unable to uh, deliver their testimony or see justice done. But we you know, finally got there. The victims finally got there. But now, you know, there were 
also others of Habre's administration who were suspected of being responsible for these crimes. There was um, Saleh Yunus and Guihini Korei, you know, who were two former directors of the DDS. Korei is Habre's nephew, Abaka Tobo, former director of the DDS prison service. You know, Mohamed Jibrini, also known as El Jonto, you know, one of the most feared torturers in Chad, according to the National Truth Commission. So why was Hissen Habre the only person standing trial? Well, that's also a good question. I think that you know, the case probably could have been much wider and brought in a, a number of other people. And it was, I think, thought that they really wanted to go after the top person, the top dog, and really tie these to the head of state. I mean, this was the head of state. This was the dictator. This was the overall leader who oversaw, in some cases, uh, you know, these incidents of torture. I mean, he was actually personally involved, uh, the documentation shows. So I think it's a good question, and I think maybe, you know, it could have gone differently in that sense. It could have been a wider prosecution, and maybe that would have brought more in. But, you know, of course, then it's a resource issue as well. The, the extraordinary court does not have limited, you know, limitless resources to go after everyone, and every case, every individual case, would take more resources, it would take more people, more lawyers, more time. So I think they were conscious of wanting to get a result and going after the big fish. Now, you know, the United States and France did support Habre as a bulwark against Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. You know, this was under President Ronald Reagan. The United States did also give covert CIA support to help Habre take power in 1982. They provided his government with military aid. France also supported Habre against Gaddafi after he took power, also providing Habre with arms. What is the stance of these governments now that Habre is on trial? Well, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, communication from those governments. I think I think that you know, so much has happened and so much time has passed that many other governments are not involved. But you are absolutely right, and it's important to remember and absolutely really critical to the way the world views this case because I think many people have forgotten how brave and how he came to power and and what he did and who his supporters were. He did have support from Reagan and Thatcher and Mitterrand, you know, and enormous amounts of support. In their eyes, they were trying, as you say, to try to counter Gaddafi. And so this was what they used to call our son of a bitch in Africa. You know, this is our, he may be terrible, but at least he's terrible for us. And, you know, we see this same policy by these same governments, you know, in other places and other parts of the world. And this continues to, to be a kind of a way of looking at geopolitics, which fails. It absolutely fails. It fails the victims, obviously, and the people who are killed and tortured. But it also fails kind of as a longer-term policy because it, does, it, it doesn't really bring the, the security that you're looking for in the country or in the region. It doesn't create allies or it doesn't create goodwill. It doesn't increase your soft power in any way to be supporting dictators and being seen to support dictators. So, you know, I'd, I'd actually... I'd rather ask Washington and London and Paris about the dictators they're supporting now. That was Andrew Stroylen, media director of Human Rights Watch, speaking to Khusiko Dingake on the line from Brussels. A high court in Kampala, Uganda, has sentenced five men to life in prison for their involvement in two bombings that killed 74 people in Uganda in July 2010. The attacks carried out by the Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab took place at a popular restaurant in Kampala where large crowds gathered to watch a FIFA World Cup match between Spain and the Netherlands. Tony Singoro has more from Kampala. The five who are going to spend the rest of their lives in prison are Issa Ahmed Limam, who was the mastermind of the attack, Habib Njoroge, a Kenyan Mohamed Ahmed, Hussein Agade, and Idris Magondo, and those who are going to serve 50 years are Hassan Limam and a Tanzanian Suleiman Nyamadondo. The five detonated two bombs in the capital Kampala, which killed 76 football fans who were watching a televised World Cup final between Netherlands and Spain at Chernondo Rugby Club and Ethiopian Village Restaurant in 2010. While passing the verdict, Justice Owinidolo held that the grave crimes of terrorism committed at the two social places must attract severe punishment. 
The lawyer who represented the convicts, Caleb Alaka, said, though they were not given death sentence, but life imprisonment was fair because terror and murder attracts death penalty here in Uganda. In as much as there have been victims and uh, the whole community abhors terrorism, murder, and so on and so forth, death sentence is not a proper way of assuaging, as the judge has rightfully put. So in as far as he did not sentence anybody to death, I think in the circumstances of the case, it looks fair. No, initially I thought there was going to be death sentence. I thought so. After yesterday's conviction and judge, I thought there was going to be death sentence. But good did not give anybody or he did not hand over the death sentence. Since 2010, terror attack to innocent Ugandans. Security has been alert with the police working with the military in guarding places where the Al Shabaab have been targeting. The director of public prosecution here in Uganda, Jane Akuo, said although a death sentence was not imposed to them, they still believe. 50 years and life imprisonment is good enough, though he was quick to point out that they are still going through the conviction for further action. But the police spokesperson, Fred Nanga, said they are also working with the victim's lawyers in order to make sure that those who love their beloved ones also get justice. This is a matter of public interest and uh, where 76 innocent Ugandans, including foreigners, during 2010 lost their lives. Others were maimed, there are those ones who were injured and uh, there is, it was actually incumbent upon us as police to ensure that if they are released, they have the safe return back to their homes. I think the lawyers should do instead work with us because uh, the lawyers aren't the persons they repre- they represented them in court that is right but what they can do is for them to uh, coordinate with us after the judgment most of the convicts remain stone-faced with no emotions though some wore sad facial expressions upon the judge announcing the sentences to them the same court also sentenced muzavara rima to one year of community service in his local area along in Road for being in accessory to the crime by helping the terrorists after the twin bombing Earlier during the mitigation, the state prosecutor Lino Anguzu asked the court to pass maximum punishment of death by hanging. But the victim's lawyer, Caleb Alaka, has remained holding the view that the convicts were brainwashed before joining the terror group. They were brainwashed, and it's good the judge looked into it, because these were young people in their early 20s. And of course, this is also a message for virtually all the heads of states or all the governments in East Africa. You see, there's something with our youth, people who are so used they are unemployed. This, you see, they leave school and then somebody comes around and gives them something small. They end up doing what these people did. So I think they were brainwashed because they were not even the actual. So, so After the ruling, what next? That one I'll discuss with them. No, that one we shall discuss with them. I think today, if they give us instructions to appeal, we shall appeal. This is a case which has been going on for a long time since 2010 and it was of its own kind in East Africa because Uganda is the only country that has sentenced the terror attacks. For Channel Africa, I am Tony Singoro reporting from Kampala, Uganda. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A Lesotho civil organization, the Free Movement of Basutu, has reiterated its call for a merger between the Mountain Kingdom and South Africa. The organization has made the latest call after 200 Basutu embarked on a protest march to the Lesotho High Commission in Menlo Park, east of Pretoria. The movement, consisting of Lesotho Basutu nationals working and living in South Africa, wants the abolishment of restrictive travel laws. Neo Makwiti has more. The Lesotho nationals who joined the protest outside the Lesotho High Commission in Menlo Park east of Pretoria, called for the incorporation of their motherland into South Africa. Many says it is time the Mountain Kingdom became South Africa's 10th province. We need the Sutu in South Africa. The Sutu is the 10th uh, province of South Africa. We want our land back if we don't get dual citizens. Again, we don't need the border gate because the Sutu is inside South Africa, so we don't know Why are we going with the passport? That's why we want South Africa and Lesotho to be one country. The freedom movement of Basotho, Dr. Lechimamurolong, echoed the sentiments 
of Meiji South Africa with its landlocked neighbor. He says the majority of Basotho regard themselves as South Africans. The Lesotho nationals request a dual citizenship from the South African government. The Lesotho country is within South Africa. Basotho land is the people of South Africa. The Free Basotho movement is against the South African government when saying Lesotho nationals who have been take the IDs of South Africa committed fraud. Fraudulent IDs are not in the Lesotho nationals. Maybe within the other nationals from neighbors of South Africa. Accepting the protesters' memorandum of demands, a high commissioner official, Sipei Sekese, urged the Lesotho nationals to respect South Africa's laws while the Maseru government looks into their concerns. We just received the petition and uh, we'll make sure that uh, it gets to the correct hands. That's the, the capital in Maseru. So my role here right now is just to uh, receive the documents or the petition on behalf of my government and then forward it to the relevant uh, authorities back at home in, in Lesotho. After delivering their memorandum, the protesters who marched under the watchful eye of the police dispersed peacefully. I'm Nema Quitting in Pretoria. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance. More than 1.3 million US dollars from the late South African President Nelson Mandela's estate has been distributed to 40 beneficiaries, including family members and former staff. Executors of his will, former Constitutional Court Deputy Chief Justice Dejan Museneke and Advocate George Bezos, handed over the cash bequests according to Madiba's instructions. Nomabulani reports. More than two years after late President Nelson Mandela's last will and testament was first read, the executors will distribute more than 22 million rand to specified beneficiaries. Madiba bequeathed parts of his estate to his family, friends, former employees, schools and universities. One of the executors, former Deputy Chief Justice Tehang Musaneke, made it a point to point out that there were no squabbles or objections raised against the cash distributions. And despite all the speculations we found and seen so often in the media, there was no fight within the family. The family was united. They gave us support and something that was totally befitting the stature and the love the stature of Mr. Mandela, and the love they owed to him and the love he had for all of the family. Mandela bequeathed 100,000 rand to several educational institutions which he attended all were close to his heart, including Kunu Secondary and Orlando West High Schools, as well as Forte and Witzwasserstrand Universities. Representatives from schools accepted the checks on behalf of the institutions. Madiba attended and graduated from Fort Hare with a law degree before practicing law in Johannesburg. The university's deputy council chairperson, Ayandam Jekula. And I don't believe that President Mandela intended to even address the financial challenges of the university. But the symbolism lies in the fact that he has made the bequest and it symbolizes his love for education and his hopes for the University of Forte. On behalf of the university, we actually accept the challenge of this bequest to uphold 
the legacy of Forte and to fulfill the promise of education in this country. Thank you. Nine of Mandela's former employees who were specified in the will received 50,000 rand. Some of them were present to receive the checks in person, but others opted to have the money sent to them via electronic transfer. Madiba's personal assistant and close friend, Zelda Lachango, was one of those who chose to be absent at the distribution event. The executors of the estate will also ensure that all creditors are paid, including the legal fees related to the execution of wills. According to Musaneke, no assets were sold in order to pay for the cash bequeaths. After distribution of the cash bequests, we executors will attend to the transfer of movable and immovable properties into the names of the heirs, will pay creditors of the estates and lodge with the master the receipts and, and, and acquaintances, acquaintances of the creditors and heirs. We are delighted to inform you all that no assets of the deceased have been sold in order to pay the bequests and to discharge estate liabilities. Justice Musaneke also clarified that the distribution of Madiba's assets did not include the Kunu home. This follows the court challenge of rightful ownership by ex-wife Winnie Madigizela Mandela. Musaneke says a resolution is yet to be reached. The executors, we executors wish to point out that the deceased home situated in Kunu and the movable assets thereon, which include obviously cattle and other farming implements, have been left out of the account. We anticipate preparing and lodging with the master second and final liquidation and distribution account after dealing with the Kronu home together with its movable assets once the dispute between the executors and Umama Wini Madikizela Mandela has been resolved. Monies to family members will be distributed through a family trust. I'm Noma Polani in Johannesburg. South Africa has reversed its decision to block the accreditation of a press freedom watchdog for consultative status at the United Nations. In a controversial vote last Thursday, South Africa joined a majority on the UN's NGO committee to vote down the application of the Committee to Protect Journalists. CPJ is an independent New York-based non-profit organization that promotes the rights of journalists around the world while highlighting corrupt practices by states that could be harmful to the profession. A statement from South Africa's Department of International Relations says they will now vote yes when the committee decision comes up for a vote in the full sitting of the Economic and Social Council. Show and Price Peace reports. South Africa initially defended the decision on procedural grounds and blamed the United States for pushing for a vote prematurely when questions it had of CPJ remained unanswered. But the Department of International Relations statement issued Friday said South Africa had no objection to CPJ being granted observer status, rather praising the group's outstanding and sterling work in the promotion and protection of the rights of journalists around the globe. This also comes after stinging criticism by the United States Ambassador Samantha Power, who called the vote to deny CPJ's accreditation outrageous. Countries have to decide which side are they on. Are they on the side of free expression? and organizations that um, try to advance that cause, or are they hostile to Article 19? And I think if you look at the, the list of countries that voted no, one learns a few things. The Secretary General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq, was earlier asked about the no vote, where South Africa joined nine other states in blocking CPJ's accreditation. The Secretary General himself has been very supportive of the work of the Committee uh, to Protect Journalists. He believes that they do valuable work to defend media rights around the world, and as a result, he is he's deeply disappointed uh, by this uh, recent decision, uh, which, as you know, uh, as, as it's carried out, it, it would block access uh, for the Committee to Protect Journalists to a number of UN bodies, including uh, access to the Human Rights Council. Uh, but, yes, uh, the Secretary General is concerned both uh, that media rights need to be respected and that NGOs, non-governmental organizations, need to have sufficient access to the work of the United Nations system. 
The UN believes journalists face poor working conditions around the world. Journalists already are facing undue restrictions on their work in many, many parts of the world. And organizations that are dedicated to protecting journalists shouldn't face restrictions at the United Nations. South Africa has indicated it will appeal to all ECOSOC members to accredit CPJ when the vote moves from committee to a full sitting of the Economic and Social Council. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni vows to cut military and security ties with North Korea in line with UN sanctions imposed following nuclear and missile tests. South Africa's opposition, the Democratic Alliance, says it will go ahead with its plans to lodge a complaint with the Independent Com- Communications Authority, ICASA, stating that the SABC has allegedly refused to air its election advertisement. And finally, five United Nations peacekeepers from Togo killed and another was seriously injured in an ambush in central Mali. For Channel Africa, I'm Jorani Tulo. Thank you, Shalani. Peacekeeping is one one way to help countries recover their physical, moral, and psychological health. That's the passionate view of Paul Mukasa Sally, a UN volunteer working as a peacekeeper with the UN African Mission in Darfur, UNAMID. A total of 154 troops and 47 police have died serving UNAMID in the troubled region of Sudan. In an interview ahead of the International Day of United Nations Peacekeepers, marked the 29th of May, he told Jumbe Omari Jumbe that it was a cause worth dying for. The best way to describe or to inform someone who does not know anything about peacekeeping is to relate the issues of peace and no peace. When there is peace, you have security, you have food. You have shelter, you have certainty. When there is no peace, you have war, you have suffering, you have fighting, you have displacement of people, and you have uncertainty. So it is only those countries who have reached critical conflict situations like Darfur, like southern Sudan, like Libya, like Cote d'Ivoire, that the international community steps in to intervene and make it possible to repair the damage which was done during the conflict. So peacekeeping can be said to be repairing a country like you give medicine to a patient to recover his health. In this case, we are here to assist the country to recover its physical, moral, and psychological health back to the state when everybody should enjoy the rights and should enjoy the resources and should live peacefully among each other. Since uh, peacekeeping was um, launched that back in 1948, some 3,400 peacekeepers have died in the course of peacekeeping. Here in Darfur, over 163 peacekeepers died over the years. Is peacekeeping a cause worth dying for? Peacekeeping is a cause worth dying for. Like the old poem, the old English poem says, it is very good to die for your country. In this case, the peacekeepers are dying in the cause of peace. They are dying in the cause of work with the United Nations, but they are dying in the cause of peace, in the cause of leaving their secure countries, leaving their secure homes, coming to work in a foreign country, and confronting situations of escorting humanitarian convoys, carrying needy food and other items to the nationals of the country who have been displaced. And they are going to make sure that delivery is escorted and reaches its destination and its beneficiaries. And if it means that they have to lose their life, then that is the price of peace. That is the price of maintaining peace. That is the price of ensuring that you give up your life for the sake of humanity. Right. Now, since peacekeeping is uh, a um, 
labyrinth of uh, challenges and difficulties. I believe you personally have come across a situation or an incident that you will never forget in the course of fulfilling your peacekeeping duties. Can you take us back to that incident? Well, I can only take you back to the incident very early in my career in Angola when we were serving the government of Angola, which was fighting Jonas Savimbi, the rebel leader at the time. And we were in a duty station where we got a radio call asking that we go back to our accommodation, pick up our passports, and run as fast as we can to the airport because if we don't do so in the next 30 minutes and the plane leaves us, then there will be no help coming from anybody. And I remember doing that, running to the aircraft, getting to this aircraft. And unfortunately, when we arrived in Luanda, we realized that those who were not able to make it, one of the planes was actually shot down as it was taking off, and we lost several colleagues. So it is one of those unnerving moments when you realize that your life was at a knife edge. If you had been late by 20, 30 minutes, then you could have suffered the same fate like those people who were deceased. Now, on this day of uh, international peacekeepers, do you have any message either to people in your country in Uganda or in the entire world, as you wish? No, I have a message for people for the entire world. The United Nations is a multinational agency. It has many activities. And sometimes when you listen to the labyrinth of activities, you forget some of the humble duties that we do. And the peacekeepers who suffer, maybe not death, but who suffer injury, who are injured in the course of their work, who are blinded. I have known peacekeepers who are welders, who have lost their limbs. So I think it's a moment for us to step back and realize what you would call the whole gamut of sacrifice. The sacrifice of a selfless work, basically, to serve humanity. But in the course of it, you could be unlikely to lose your life. You could be unlikely to lose your limb. You could be unlikely to lose your sight. You could be unlikely to be injured permanently. So it's a sacrifice, and I think it's nice to reflect on those who have suffered misfortunes and to realize what a big price they've had to pay in the course of whatever they were doing to serve humanity. That was Paul Mukasa Sally, a UN volunteer as working as a peacekeeper with the UN African Mission and Darfur UNAMID, speaking to UN Radio's Jumbe Omari Jumbe. The number of Zimbabwean women dying while giving birth remains very high despite improvements in health provisions, according to the 2015 Zimbabwe Demographic Health and Health Survey report. Previously, the country regarded maternal mortality as a national disaster, with nearly a 1,000 women losing their lives annually while giving birth until measures were put in place to force all mothers to give birth in hospitals. Our Harare correspondent, Simon Muchemo, has more. Zimbabwean women aspiring to have babies have been urged to continue using the health services centers as the maternal mortality remains very high. During a demographic and health survey report in 2010, at least 960 women would die each year while giving birth owing to various reasons. Although the figure of mothers dying reduced to 651 per every 100,000 life births in the 2015 survey, the key indicators reveal maternal mortality is still very high in Zimbabwe. HIV and AIDS Religious and traditional beliefs, coupled with poorly resourced medical centers, were blamed for the high mortality rate over the years. Zimbabwean women are punished for giving birth, medical experts say. Meanwhile, the UNFPA country representative in Zimbabwe, Mr. Sheikh Tiane Sise, explained last Friday in Harare. On the maternal health side, we have seen that the findings show that maternal mortality has declined to 651 per 100,000 life births, which was about 960 uh, in 2010. Despite the fact that we see the decrease, I think we need to understand that still this level is high, unacceptably high, and very far from the 2020 target of Ministry of Health, which is dreaming 
of bringing those level at 326. According to Dr. Poshia Manangazira, Director of Epidemiology and Disease Control at the Ministry of Health and Child Care, COVID maternal deaths a week is a disaster. It's a big uh, item of concern within the ministry and indeed in the nation. As you know, maternal death should be a very rare event. And this is why even the denominator is per 100,000. It should be something that you rarely hear of. Because uh, pregnancy should be normal. And it should be a, a source of uh, pleasure and happiness because we are expecting another human being. So if it's going to be a process that takes away either the mother or the baby, then for me it's, it's a real disaster. I'm a public health uh, specialist. From 1988, Zimbabwe conducts a demographic survey every five years to help give attention to key health indicators in the country. The demographic and health survey is a community-based survey that the Ministry of Health uh, in conjunction with the Zimbabwe Statistical Agency conducts and as a country we are lucky to have had that survey every five years as from 1988. So it allows us to pick health indicators within the community uh, that otherwise would not get at our health facilities. As you know, some of the health events start and end within the community. So through the demographic and health survey, we are able to get information on specific parameters. For example, HIV prevalence, the malaria incidences, uh, anemia. We are able to do biological testing. Mr. Mtasa Zinotizei, Director General of Zimbabwe Statistical Department had this to say. The, in, the results being presented today represent the key indicators that should meet the immediate data needs of users while the main report is being finalized. The demand for data is heavy. So that's why we are coming up with these key indicators before we come to the main report in September, October 2016. That's what we are doing really. It's very, very important. But more fundamentally, we are meeting a date. It's like the, the same thing we do with population census. There's a lot of analytical work that Zimstat does. But in the interim period, we must give you the population census result, the first, so that people who have that need for data, we can satisfy their need at that particular point in time. Dr. Manangazira said the country is at a crucial time considering the MDGs reporting has been done, but now planning should start taking place regarding AU Agenda 2063 and SDG. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at a crucial time as we talk, having concluded the MDG reporting. And I think as a country, you know the gap in terms of the unfinished MDG business. And as we now start navigating towards the sustainable development goals, it is very critical that we know where we are in terms of the various indicators. And what a great time to now receive the results of the demographic and health survey. 2015. We have other ambitious targets, including the continent-wide AU Agenda 2063. And I think this is the time again to decide as a nation where we are and where we are supposed to be by a certain time, and therefore design our programs and interventions accordingly. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rising. Yo sole elevate. We ya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, dumelang san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Agriculture is the backbone that will lift the world's least developed countries out of that category. As according to Ashwani Mutu, Director of Global Policy, Knowledge and Strategy at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, a UN agency that is working to eradicate rural poverty. Last year, nearly 70% of the agency's new annual commitment went to LDCs. Mutu was recently in Antalya, Turkey, attending a conference to review progress in these 48 nations over the past five years. He explained to Stephanie Kutrix about the need to invest in agriculture to help these countries achieve economic and social transformation. Well, surely there is need for greater investment. And related to that, 
the importance of the role of the private sector so that farmers and small farmers themselves can more effectively participate in the value chain. Private sector is fundamental. Farming has to be seen as a business, as an enterprise, and made attractive, including uh, ensuring that there's greater role for agribusiness. Food security is important, but there has to be a transformation which goes beyond food security to improve livelihoods in general. Is it about changing the technology or is it about expanding the business? What's the balance there? I think it's, a, it's not one or the other, it's both. There is definitely a need for better technologies, low-cost technologies, especially for smallholders, in the context of climate issues. Many of the least developed countries are affected by severe drought, recurrent flooding. So there is need for investment in research and development and technology as well, greater investment in those areas so that they can actually be productive with low-cost technology. That is fundamental. Were there any particular requests from countries here in terms of how IFAD can best support their transformation? Surely there were. There were um, in terms of capacity building at the grassroots level, in terms of ensuring that small farmers can be better organized so that they can build on their collective capacity beyond just individual capacity. So that's a lot of, a lot of work in terms of institution building at the local level. There's greater need for infrastructure development, especially in rural areas, so that small farmers can be better connected to markets. They can have better access to rural finance to invest in agricultural activities. And have you been part of any discussions on countries that may be graduating soon from LDC status and how much agriculture is a part of that possibility? Well, first of all, unfortunately, not many countries have graduated from the list so far. So that, that was Ashwani Mutu, Director of Global Policy, Knowledge and Strategy at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, speaking to UN Radio Stephanie Kutrix. Our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. Vodacom plans to shut down its Mpesa mobile money unit next month after attracting only 76,000 subscribers. But in Zimbabwe, new research suggests that the uptake of mobile money is so great it threatens the viability of traditional banks. In 2015, the majority of transactions were conducted not through the banks but on mobile money platforms. The Sibanya Platinum Mine, formerly known as Aquarius in Kurwendal, near Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province, has obtained a court interdict preventing over 1,400 AMCU members to continue with this strike action. Last week Friday, workers embarked on a strike demanding underground and transport allowances and rescue packages, amongst others. Zebulon Maina reports. Our apologies for lack of sound on that one. Timber dealers have expressed concern over the impending implementation of value-added tax by the Rwanda Revenue Authority. The dealers and furniture makers say many of them operate small businesses that would be affected by the tax if it is enforced. The timber dealers have called for revision of the VAT rate to less than the current 18%. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has resolved to keep the Naira's exchange rate steady while supporting the central bank's decision to move away from the dollar peg, which is seen as overvaluing the Naira. Last week, the central bank said it would shift to a more flexible exchange rate policy to stop Africa's biggest economy sliding into recession. But as yet to say exactly what the new policy is. Buhari says that they have resolved to keep the Naira steady. Egypt's economy grew 4.5% in the first half of 2015, a 16 fiscal year. Total gross domestic product for the first of fiscal year 2015-16 was 158 billion US dollars in the first half. Second quarter growth for 2015-16 was 3.8%. The US dollar trades at 1570 in South Africa, 11 in Botswana, 1030 in Zambia. 68 British pound, 89 euro, gold $1,203, platinum $968 an ounce, brand crude $49.10 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Dahoku.
Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with uh, Figula Nguati. Figula, what was the result? Um, Euro, Atletico and uh, Real Madrid. The final score. The final score is 5-3 on penalties to Real Madrid winning after a 2 all draw during the regulated time. All right. <laughs> Give us a sports update. First up in our sports update this hour, we're starting off with athletics. The ultra-marathon David Khadebe was motivated by breaking the long-standing men's down-run record to win the 2016 Comrades Marathon down-run from Peter Marisbeck to Durban. The South African won gold medal when he finished the race in 5 hours, 18 minutes and 19 seconds to smash the 9-year record set by the Russian Leonid Shevchenkov, who has since been implicated in a doping scandal. He started very slowly, but in the last 44 kilometers, he destroyed the field to win the 91st edition of the renowned ultra-marathon race in the world. Khadebe says his main ambition was to break the record in the race. I want to thank my sponsor, TomTom, Nutrition, Impala Platinum, Susan, and my classes, Susan. Okay, I want to start here because I said my push. I want to break the record for Russia about the five five ninety. So I did well, but this thing I thinking about on the 35 35 case to go. I thinking yeah, now is the time to go to the record. I just uh, passing for the guard guy for the Soto Silo. I just said my knowledge is about now is their time. And in football news, the Super Eagles of Nigeria have arrived in Luxembourg City ahead of the Tuesday's international friendly against that country's senior national team. A delegation left Rouen when they played against Mali and lost 1-0 to Mali on Friday and are now at the Alvise Park Hotel located en route Dertracht in Luxembourg City. Friday's defeat by Mali was the third loss in 11 matches for the Nigerians, and the Malians have already qualified for the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations with two matches to spare. The Super Eagles interim coach, Samson Siasia, says there is a great spirit in camp as players and officials look forward to winning against Luxembourg. And thousands of Real Madrid fans piled into the streets of the Spanish capital and fill the club's 80,000-capacity Santiago Bernabeu Stadium on Sunday to welcome home the heroes after a historic 11th European Cup win. An open-top bus emblazoned with the world words, Campeones, that champions are carried the team who showed off the trophy for fans just after sunrise on the return from beating local rivals Atletico Madrid in a penalty shootout in Milan. The squad snapped photos of the Rockyas crowd from a platform specially erected at Sibeles before Captain Sergio Ramos waved the large silver trophy for the cheering supporters. Ramos says to win two Champions Leagues in three years shows that their efforts have had their reward. And finally, with the golf news, Chris Wood has won the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth for the biggest win of his career. The 28-year-old Englishman finished on 9 under par for a one-stroke win over Richard Kahlberg with Masters champion Danny Willett in third. Nick Dyer reports. I think at 15 guys. Wood has won on the European Tour in Qatar and Austria. He's noted for his two top five finishes at the Open Championship. He'd come close at Wentworth in the past, leading by two into the last round only to slip to sixth place. This victory in front of family and friends as well as a home crowd he calls unreal. Three off the lead at the start of the final day, an eagle and four birdies saw him surge clear of the field. Yet he had to show grit and resilience on the back nine as he slipped back and he held on to edge out Kahlberg, who'd shot a 65 much earlier in the day. Willett barely threatened, but he still secures a prominent finish that cements his race to Dubai standing. Wood is up to third in the race. He could be in the world's top 25, and he has the Olympics and the Ryder Cup in his sights. That's just what news this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa tsoza Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, former Chadian leader awaits a verdict on charges of crimes against humanity and five people sentenced to life in prison for deadly terror attacks in Uganda. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.ca.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277 Now taking us to the top of an hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Black Coffee featuring MQ with a song titled Come With Me. Send